I was thinking of that song, 10,000 Reasons, just the other day when we, for those of you who are on the CBR schedule, we finished the book of John just uh, a few days ago. And I love how at the end of John, uh, <laughs> the apostle says, there are so many other things that Jesus did. Yeah, I suppose if they were all written down, the world would not contain enough, the world would not have enough room for all the books. And I wonder if that's hyperbole, or I wonder if that's literally true. I mean, if Jesus is infinite, I I don't know. Either way, the point is taken. There are 10,000 reasons, many more, to praise him and to honor him. I wonder how many you're aware of. I wonder how many your heart and my heart are oriented to. How much of your life is given over to praising God for who he is? One of our goals tonight is to grow in our view of how glorious he is. You might have a God that you think has a hundred things that are praiseworthy. Or maybe three hundred things that are praiseworthy. But we're all falling short, aren't we? So my prayer is that tonight we will grow and see God to be more glorious. I suppose another view, another goal that I have, I was thinking about this um, while we were singing. Uh, You know, we're working on this series where we're connecting lots of parts of the Bible together. And I think one of the goals is I want to give you a bigger Bible. Now, obviously, we're not adding to the Bible and, you know, we're not making making your Bible literally bigger. Uh, I do admire those of you who carry, like Benny, those honking Bibles around. No wonder you're so, so strong, right? Yeah, you got those. Yeah, I like the small Bibles. Yeah. Uh, what, what I mean is that, you know, for most of us, there are functionally parts of the Bible that we use, and then there's like a bunch we ignore. You know what I mean? Like, you just ignore all those at the end of the Old Testament, or, you know, kind of skip some here and there. Like, you love Psalms and Proverbs. Have you ever ever wondered, you know, like, the Gideons, they have, like, the New Testament. I I love the Gideons, but, like, the New Testament and then the Psalms. Like, they had to decide, like, those are the most useful ones. Or you'll see, uh, you'll see at the bookstore, uh, the Proverbs and the Psalms. You never see, like, Ruth and Ezekiel. Like, why? It's because our Bibles aren't big enough. Like, we don't see how they contribute to the bigger picture. And so that's one of our, our goals in this series. I think this is the 14th or 15th sermon in this series. And tonight, we are continuing uh, to move through our next installation in the study on the new covenant. And I've been praying and sincerely hope that this study has been helpful to you, uh, helpful in, in broadening your Bible. I'm deeply persuaded of its value. Uh, as we've said, each week we've been asking the question, what is new about the new covenant? And I hope that you're getting better at answering that question. What is new about the new covenant? Of course, when we think about covenant, we're thinking about relationship, right? All of the covenants are about a relationship with God. So we're thinking, how do we relate to God? Or how do we relate to God differently in the new covenant than folks did in the old? Or how is our relationship with God better in the new covenant than it was in the old? We've answered that in a couple ways. One, one answer we've given is that the new covenant is better than the old covenant because in it we get a new heart, a 
new heart. God takes out our heart of stone and he gives us, replaces them with the heart of flesh. Hearts that, as we'll see tonight, desire to obey God. Desire to worship him. There's something in these new hearts that stirs when we hear God's word preached. There's stirs when we think about 10,000 reasons to praise him. Not as much as we want, not as much as we should, but it is beating, right? A new heart. We've also seen that in the new covenant we have new life. That unlike in the old covenant where folks were born into it just by being born physically, in the new covenant you must be spiritually born into the community of God. That is, you must be born Last week, we added to this the benefit of a new priest and mediator, a better priest, a better mediator, and that's Jesus. He is so much better than all the other priests. Namely, he doesn't keep dying like they did. He doesn't keep dying because of sin. In fact, he died once, and when he died, it was once for all. He died for the sins of others, and because of that, he gets us, he earns face-to-face access to God. We have the right and the privilege to walk into his room, standing up, and talk with him. That's incredible. We get to ride Jesus' coattails into the presence of God. How different is that from the Old Covenant? Tonight we're going to add a fourth benefit and it's going to be shaped a little different and that's going to be the return from exile or you could think of freedom from slavery. We could call it a lot of different things. We could call it uh, freedom from slavery. We could call it return to Eden. All these ideas overlap some but we're going to focus tonight on this theme, this joint theme really of exile and exodus. They go together, right? Exile and exodus. This morning I read a fantastic, perhaps unbelievable story about a dog named Ira. Ira, I mean this seems completely unbelievable to me. You can judge for yourself. Um, It was reported in the local newspapers, but Ira is a four-year-old black lab who lives in Sweden. Her parents, her her owners, right, her dog parents, whatever, uh, they, went, they had to go away on vacation for the first time, and so they boarded her in, you know, a kennel or, or, or whatever. Well, apparently, I was amused by this, uh, whoever wrote this article judged that Ira was homesick, right? I don't know how they determined this, but apparently she did not appreciate this and was homesick. So on her very first day, Ira managed to escape from her crate, get out of the kennel, like the building, make her way to the nearest train station, which was a kilometer away. She waited with other passengers after ducking the turnstall and boarded a northbound train towards her hometown of Hockergen. It's in Sweden, remember. I have no idea what that, I just, we'll just go with that. She patiently waited on the train for five stops until she got to the sixth stop, which just so happened to be her home station, the busiest one in the area. And I'm going to guess if this is true, which there's no way this is true, but this, right, it's, I mean, I've read it in the paper. And they said it was verified by the police and by uh, the animal control folks. They verified the story, but they're Swedish, so, you know. Um, 
apparently I'm going to put my money that home if it wasn't for that pesky paw that got caught in the door getting off the train. And so she had to be rescued uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, kept more securely by the authorities until she was returned to her, her owners, right? And this is an incredible story in the, like, the literal sense of the word. But I think it illustrates how powerful the longings of homesickness can be, even in a dog, right? Homesickness can be overwhelming. If you've ever experienced this in a major way, when I was 19, I lived in Africa. Whoa, I was homesick. <laughs> um, you've, you've probably all interacted with children and grandchildren that are, that are homesick. And, and, you know, we've experienced this perhaps from time to time. But as adults, we've generally learned to, you know, to toughen up, to deal with it, to suppress it, manage it. But in many ways, the Bible is a story of homesickness. It, it, it's, it's a story where humans, who because of sin, have been stranded, have been lost, have been alienated, have been kicked out of the house, and really left to die. This has been the case ever since Adam and Eve were forced out of the garden. They were forced out of their home into the harsh realities of a fallen world, away from the presence of God and condemned to die until God steps in to the rescue. Now tonight we are going to see a pattern of exile and rescue, or we could say a pattern of exile exodus, one that repeats itself multiple times throughout the Bible. I'm going in and out, aren't I? The batteries. I need new batteries. Um, going in and out, uh, sorry, repeating over and over again. Uh, and basically, the pattern plays out the same way each time. And, and you might want to jot these down because you'll, I'm not going to make them super explicit each time, but you'll, you'll hear this, and you don't, you don't have to jot it down. I'm not one of those guilt note taker folks, right? Like, I don't take notes most of the time, but you don't have to. Um, but you might want to. Um, so, so the first part of the pattern you see is this. You see, in the beginning, there's this setting that begins with God dwelling with his people. Okay? This is always the case. Before exile, right, there is a home. And it always includes God with his people. They enjoy safety. They enjoy protection. They enjoy blessing. And they enjoy fellowship. But the second part is that man always somehow (laughs) disrupts this fellowship, this relationship, because of sin. Time and time and time again, and friends, you are a part of this pattern. Man has decided that the blessing of God's presence is not good enough. It's not good enough. He needs to up his game for us. And so we rebel. We sin. But God is holy. In fact, the Bible says he is a consuming fire. And if sinners dwell in his presence, they will be consumed. That's what happens when a consuming fire dwells with sinners. And so in his mercy, this is the third part, he exiles them because of sin. Thank you, Kelsey. He exiles them because of their sin. That's the third part, right? He, he kicks them out of the garden, or he allows them to be enslaved in Egypt, or he allows them to be sent off to Babylon or attacked by the Assyrians. 
but they are exiled because of sin. The fourth part then is that then comes the, ex- the rescue, the exodus. It's where God rescues his people. He goes and he redeems them. He pays their debts. He gets them out. And usually it's by a blood sacrifice. The final part is that relationship between God and man is restored. If the people are obedient, this relationship will be maintained. Okay? So you have God dwelling with his people. Man disrupts it with sin. God exiles them because of sin. Then there's a rescue, an exodus, and then there's a restored relationship. You got it? You'll hear these all over the place. Now, what you need to understand is that this great act which always harkens back to the, the Exodus, like the big one, it appears all throughout the Bible, right? I hope that one of the things that you gain tonight is that you'll start looking in your Bible reading for Exodus kind of language, right? So whenever, God is to, whenever the Bible talks about uh, God um, parting the sea, that's salvation language because it's like the penultimate, well, whatever the second penultimate is, the second best, like that is the salvation paradigm in the Old Testament, right? And so pay attention to those. They point to God, the rescuer. Now we could look at hundreds of texts. This is what has been so hard for me in this series. We could look at, I'm serious, hundreds of texts where we see God anchoring his character in the fact that he did what he did in in, in Egypt, Anchoring the fact that he is the one who rescued Israel. And it points back explicitly to how he delivered his people in Egypt. But what you really need to see is that just as the Bible looks back on the Exodus as the paradigmatic salvation event, it also looks ahead to a bigger and better salvation event where guess who does the rescuing? Jesus. And he rescues slaves of sin. Where Christ rescues in this big salvation event those enslaved by sin. He breaks the bondage of slavery. He beats up on a bigger, badder Pharaoh. And he leads them to a new land where they can worship God. The new exodus. And so, as you might expect, this is a massive theme, and we have to do a rapid tour. But it's necessary because this is connected with the new covenant. When the prophets talk about the new covenant, especially Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, like the three big ones, when they're talking about the new covenant, they are constantly using new exodus language or exodus language to describe it. In other words, we see Jesus as a new and better and bigger Moses, right? A Moses figure. Jesus is the one who frees captives and leads them into the promised land. In Ephesians chapter 4, it describes it like saying, he ascends on high leading a host of captives. That sounds like the Exodus, doesn't it? Except he's ascending on high. The captives are going up high, right? And so we could do lots of texts, but I've decided to just show you one main one. So turn to Ezekiel. It's okay if you look at the table of contents. Ezekiel chapter 36. 
Let's read this big chunk. Um, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Okay, now we have Exodus language. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Okay, listen again. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanlinesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. We'll, we'll stop there. Okay. But real quickly, I want you to notice the elements of the Exodus that are there. Exodus and exile. In verse 24, there's this promise to gather nations, right? So the assumption is that they have been spread Right, spread out in exile and need to be gathered or regathered back into a land. Also in verse 24 is that with this gathering comes forgiveness. The idea is that sin has caused exile and so forgiveness is needed. It gives us a hint that there's something bigger than just a political event taking place. In verse 26, we get this anticipation of something big where God gives a new heart and even his own spirit. In verse 28, this new exodus, there is a restoration of land. Okay, the land part is important and God is with them. And then in verses 29 and 30, we get a picture of the blessing. If God is there, blessing will come, right? Because God is the source of life. And so wherever God is, wherever his presence is, there is blessing and abundance. Now, parts of this promise seem like they're on a small scale. Like God gathering back the exiles, right? Like a physical regathering. Bringing them back to their literal land, their actual place. But then there's other parts that seem huge. Like New Covenant huge. They seem big, right? Forgiveness. A new heart. God's spirit within them, God dwelling among them, they seem big and spiritual. And this is because the prophets are anticipating that when the new covenant comes, there will be a new exodus that comes. Okay, the point is that the new covenant and the new exodus go hand in hand. That's the main point, all right? Now, we're going to trace four different exiles in the Bible, Right? Four different exiles in the Bible, and I'll try to go pretty quickly because I think you'll track pretty pretty well on these. The first is Eden, the exile from Eden, right? The biblical notion of exile is very closely connected to land. You have to be exiled from a place, like from a location. And more importantly, it's connected with 
a separation from God, right? Uh, and so we could say exile is being separated from the place where God is. You tracking with, with the logic, right? So the idyllic place in the Bible where God and man dwell together is Eden. Obviously, it's a place of abundance. It's a place of joy where humanity had total access to God. I mean, they walked in the cool of the evening. I mean, what, a, what an incredible picture of intimacy. And because of this, there is abundance in the garden. I mean, there's like rub, rubles, sitting, rubies sitting on the ground, right? There's gold everywhere. It, 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 is, it is a picture of a, of, of a land flowing with milk and honey before the phrase is used. But as you know, because of sin, God exiled them. He banished them from the garden. And with this banishment came a couple of things. And we'll see this pattern again and again. There's a broken human relationship, right? There's enmity between the husband and the wife. Human relationships were broken. And then they were enslaved to sin and enslaved to the curse of the fall. So they became slaves of sin and death. Life outside of the garden was hard. Life of exile is hard, but it is not as bad as it could be. It seems that God, after the uh, expulsion from Eden, still visited the exiles. And, but yet we still see the pattern continues. One example, and there are others, is with the story of Cain. Cain murdered his brother, and do you remember what happened? He was immediately cursed, and what was that curse? He was exiled, right? He was kicked out of his land, away from God. The scriptures say in Genesis chapter 4, remember that there's a connection between the place of God's dwelling and God himself. Listen to what Genesis 4 says. When, when Cain was groaning, he said this, Behold, you have driven me away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Do you, do you see the pattern? Cain's exile really just was a more severe version of the exile that his parents have. And that we all have. Dark hearts. Where sin alienates us from God. And so if we were to fast forward through the rest of Genesis and we could see more patterns, we'd come to the book of Exodus where we see the big major pattern of Exodus and exile. That's the second one. Abraham's descendants had become enslaved in Egypt. Later, uh, later authors actually refer to this as Israel's first exile. There, there's exile language. God even predicted it. He told Abraham that it would happen and that his offspring would be called sojourners or strangers. That is, they would literally be enslaved. They would be under constant threat of death and they would be without a land and that God would be distant. And of course, you know the story. God looked down. He saw the people of Israel. He had fulfilled his promise to make them a lot of, lot of number, but they weren't a great nation because they didn't have a land and they didn't have a they, didn't have, they weren't really a nation. They had no, nothing to bind them together but slavery. So God raised up a savior, Moses. And through the hand of Moses, God unleashed ten plagues. And it's which plague that should get the most attention? Not darkness after the sermon, right? But the Passover, where God brings judgment by killing the firstborn. 
Now, you'll notice that with the Passover plague, the final, the, the tenth plague, there is danger for Israel, right? If Israel doesn't smear the blood of a lamb on the doorpost, what will happen to Israel's firstborn? They will die. God will visit judgment on his own people. And so because of the blood of the lamb, Israel avoids the penalty of death that judgment would bring. God rescues Israel through sacrifice. It's real important. And the outcome of Israel's exodus meant that a whole nation of worshipers was created. Do you remember what Moses said to Pharaoh? He said, let my people go. Why? So that we can go out and worship. And then God says, hey, I've made you a nation of priests, right? He made them worshipers. He brought them out into the wilderness to create a church, worshipers, a community of worshipers. He gave them his law. He called them to be holy. Why? Because if you're going to be with God, you've got to be holy. Because God's a consuming fire. If you're not holy, you're going to burn. Right? So he gave them his law. And then he gave them his presence. Right? Now, it's not quite the same as Eden, but it's still pretty good. God clearly, obviously, dramatically, like for ADD people, he like made it really clear that his presence was there. Right? Pillar of cloud by day. Ah, like I see it, right? Like, or pillar of fire by night. Like God was among his people, just like in Eden. Well, not just like, but in a similar way. In some similar way as Eden. He also instructed them to build what? The tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? Like, that's where God was going to do. That's where the glory of God would reside. And they would have God's glory, God's presence among them until they made their way to where? A land, the promised land. God would go with them. He would take them to a land of blessing, a land of milk and honey. And so think about what we've seen. We've seen God rescue his people from exile, slavery, establish a relationship with them, right? He's with them. And then he's taking them to a new Eden, a new promised land. You see? But what happened? Remember, sin does what? It disrupts this relationship. They didn't keep the law, so what do you think the punishment was? It was another exile. Except this time, God banished a whole generation to stay in the wilderness where they already were. It's like a mini exile within an exile, within an exodus. Right? An entire generation was buried in the wilderness because they wouldn't obey God. And eventually, we see all of God's promises to Abraham fulfilled. We see Israel possess the land. We see God establish a king. Then we see one of these kings construct a temple for God. And the best part is the glory of God filled it. God was once again with his people in a land, a new Eden, where they could worship God, enjoy uh, fellowship with one another. Uh, They were a unified nation. It was like Eden again. But how long does it last? Like literally half a generation. Right? Because that came to fulfillment in Solomon. And then what did Solomon do? He wandered away from the Lord. It didn't even last a generation. And so, just as Moses predicted, we see Israel turning away from God. 
worshiping idols, going to necromancers, intermarrying with pagans, and they did exactly what God, what Moses predicted, and so God did exactly what he would, exactly what he said he would do. What did he do? He exiled again. All right, this is the most famous exile. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, looking ahead, this is what it says, the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury with great wrath and cast them into another land. What a picture of exile. Deuteronomy says in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that God drove them out among the nations. Where else do we see God driving somebody out? The garden, right? I looked it up. Like this drive, the same word is used. Driving out into the nations, driving out of the garden. It's Israel's, I guess we could say, second exile. So this, this main exile, right, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, God raised them up and, and they overwhelmed, because remember the nation divided, right, they couldn't even get along. So God overwhelmed them through the Assyrians and the Babylonians and they scattered God's people. They destroyed the temple, right, God's glory had already left, but they destroyed the temple and in fact, uh, Ezekiel tells us that God's glory didn't just leave the temple, it left the whole city, Right? The city of God was abandoned by God in exile. And so it seemed like God's covenant with Israel had been reversed. Right? Sin broke it. Like in fact, to think about it, the entire exodus was basically reversed. Right? You see, I mean, think about Daniel. You, they're basically back in slavery, maybe a little more sophisticated slavery. They're separated from one another. They don't have a king. They don't have a temple. God's not with them. It is the undoing of the Exodus, all because of sin. There's one verse that shows how complete, how thorough, how serious this exile was. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 9, listen to this. And the Lord said, you are not my people and I'm not your God. That is complete exile. And so the prophets, especially Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, think of Daniel's great prayer in Daniel chapter 9. They begin to realize that this exile was because of sin. And so they begin to beg for God to restore his city, to remember his covenant And so what did God do? God is merciful and gracious, right? He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so God was moved. He heard the cry of his people. And so guess what happens? Another exodus begins. This time, he bypasses the human element. I love this. Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom. Basically, the proclamation is he sends them back home. He sends Israelites back home and so that they can rebuild the city walls and rebuild the temple. And God lays it on the hearts of other kings. <laughs> Isn't that great? God wants to do something. He's like, I think I'm just going to tell that king to do it. <laughs> he didn't even know God, right? Uh, and, he, and so the, the city walls were repaired and uh, some of the exiles returned home. Even the temple was rebuilt. But it wasn't the same, was it? There's, the, the text says there were some who saw the new temple and they wept. Because it's pitiful compared to the old temple. There was even like some confusion on whether or not God was there. 
Like, they, like is, the glory, is God here or not? And not only that, but not all the remnant returned. People were still scattered. There was no king. There's no Davidic king, right? They promised an eternal Davidic king. He wasn't there. And in fact, uh, they still had political oppression. They're still bullied by other nations because they were weak. And even more, even more importantly, there's still no new hearts. Where were these new hearts that Ezekiel promised? Where's this spirit of God that Jeremiah promised? The people were still divided. God's people didn't have God's spirit. And so prophets, at the end of the Old Testament, prophets like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, they were just, they, part of what they do is they describe how these post-exiles kept missing out on God's blessing. That God was ready to give blessing, but, but they wouldn't experience it because they wouldn't give their whole hearts in worship. I think that's what Malachi 3.10 is referring to. When it says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there would be room in my house. Test me in this, declares the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not pour out the whole floodgates of heaven. That's not just tithing. That's about giving your whole heart to God. They wouldn't do it. So they didn't get the blessing. Where's the cleansing of guilt? Where are the hearts that want to obey? Ezekiel prophesied, God said, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Is this what that looks like? It kind of feels like they need to be delivered again. Kind of feels like they need a new Moses. Sin just keeps disrupting things. So by the end of the Old Testament, it becomes increasingly clear that humanity's problem is not primarily a geographical one, right? It's not a land issue primarily. It's not that the people are scattered. It's really not even primary relational issues like if they could just get the right diplomats. It's sin. Sin is the problem. God's people are utterly unable to remain faithful to God. I mean, they lost his law. You ever thought of that? Like they lost it. Like they misplaced it, right? They can't keep it. They can't even keep up with it. Something has got to change. If God is going to save his people, he's going to have to do something different. He's going to have to send someone better than Moses, and he's going to have to send someone who has access to the heart. Someone who has power over the human heart and also has power over death himself itself. Of course, by now, you know, that person is Jesus. And he does this in what I want you to think of as the new exodus. Jesus came to his people who were enslaved. Not to Pharaoh, not even to Rome, even though they were clearly under Roman rule. But they were enslaved to sin and death. This is why Jesus is always talking about spiritual stuff and his, his followers are always talking about political stuff. He's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not here for that, right? He's got something bigger in view. Matthew chapter 4 says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus' main concern was not their political suffering. 
He came to deal with the root problem. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from what? Their sins. Jesus is doing something different. Jesus is different than Moses. He came on the Exodus mission, but he's got something bigger in view. And he accomplished this, as you know, right? As we will celebrate. And that's why Paul is able to declare in Romans chapter 8, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free, that's Exodus language, in Christ Jesus from what? The law of sin and death. Jesus came to beat sin. Jesus came to beat death. The political stuff's coming later, right? He came to restore relationship with God. I mean, Jesus literally came for a relationship. Do you remember? The virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and his name, and you shall call him what? Emmanuel. What does that mean, church? God is coming back down. God is dwelling. I mean, we see Jesus tabernacling in John 1, and he's Emmanueling in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 1. God is coming back among his people. Not to rebuild a temple. That's not the point. But to open a way for God. And how did he do this? Man, we could talk about this for a while, but I'm going to try to summarize it. Do you remember what saved Israel in the first exodus? It was the blood. Or it's Passover. The blood of a Passover lamb covered the sinful Israelites. The Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus became the Passover lamb. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And as we've traced this pattern of exile in the Bible, we've seen three common characteristics emerge each time, right? Sinners are exiled from God, sinners are exiled from each other, and sinners are exiled from the land. When Jesus came, he came to become the Passover lamb. And when he became the Passover lamb, he took each one of those elements on the cross, Jesus became sin. Number one, he was exiled from God. In the ninth hour, darkness covered the land. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you exiled me? Jesus was exiled from God. Jesus was also exiled from others. He died alone. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Even Peter denied him. He was betrayed by one of his own. He was abandoned by his own. He was crucified by his own. He was exiled from others. Jesus was also, I would even argue, exiled from the land. Consider this. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere even to lay his head. Jesus wasn't even welcome in the world he created. So when Jesus bore the sin of Israel, when Jesus took on the exile of Israel, he accomplished the exodus of Israel. And I'm not just talking about ethnic Israel. Jesus' work was so effective and so big and so broad and so powerful that anyone can come be a part of the family. 
Anyone can come be an heir with Abraham, a joint heir and a son of Abraham. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, an alien from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope in the world and without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you who were once exiled, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's the Passover lamb. So how do things stand now? Do you, are you tracking with that, right? So how do things stand now? For those who are in Jesus, the curses that were placed on Adam and Eve, they're slowly losing their power. Did you know that? They're thawing. Winter is thawing. The Exodus is not totally complete. We're in the middle of it. We're still waiting. But friends, the process of restoration has been done. That's one of the main points I want you to see tonight is that Jesus has decisively and finally broken the power of sin. And because he has, the power of sin is fading. I hope it is fading in your life. I hope that sin has less power over you now than it did last year as you grow. Slowly, gradually, the power of sin is fading. Not culturally, right? It seems to be doing the opposite culturally. If you want to see the power of sin fading, you've got to find a church. And you've got to find a church that actually has Christians in it. And you've got to look at their lives. And if you find Christians, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see lives that are being transformed. You're going to see lives that have been freed from sin. The church is the place where we can go and look and see Eden re-emerging. No longer are we enslaved to sin. You should go to a church. When you talk to Christians, you're going to find a heart that wants to honor God. A heart that wants to worship. A heart that wants to obey. So friends, do everything to cultivate that in your hearts. Why in the world would we turn back? Why in the world would we return to slavery? No, let's exercise these new hearts to fight sin, to put it to death, and to grow in godliness with hearts that love God. No longer do we have broken relationships with one another. I know we struggle. I know there's bickering. But the Bible says that Jesus is our peace. And since he is our peace, we can live at peace with one another. In fact, if you don't forgive as God has forgiven you, the Bible says that you have serious, you should seriously doubt if you're a Christian. Because Christians forgive. You should look at the church and tell what the new creation is like. Also, we're no longer banished from God's presence. All of the effects of the exile are being undone. We do not have to live banished from God's presence because God's spirit dwells in us. Friends, you and I have access to God. And since we have access to God, we have access to the source of life. And though life is hard, there is never any legitimate reason for a Christian to be depressed. There's never any legitimate reason for us not to have hope or joy. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. It doesn't mean we don't mourn. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve. But friends, we have access to God, the source of life. This new exodus is not complete. So the Bible calls us strangers, sojourners. It calls us aliens. 
we are still wandering through the desert. We've seen the great deliverance from Pharaoh. We've seen the parting of the Red Sea, but we are still waiting for the promised land. You see, the Bible says our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. So here we still suffer under the curse of death. We still struggle with the conflict of sin. But friends, soon the darkness will be over. Soon night will end. Because at the last trumpet, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ will be rised imperishable. And the living will be clothed with immortality. And as Matthew 24 says, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather, right? They will exodus. They will, they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And we will all be caught up in the clouds to meet him in the air. And God will be our God and we will be his people in a new Jerusalem. Friends, this is the new and the final exodus. And what a day that will be. Don't live like slaves. Look ahead. Don't live like citizens of earth. Live as an alien. And celebrate the freedom you have in Christ. Father, we thank you for the work that you've done. I pray that tonight you would let these words impact our hearts so that we would be encouraged to do battle with sin, to live at peace with one another, and to enjoy communion with you always. Thank you for Jesus. May he be honored in our hearts and in our church today. In this we pray. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.